Hey, what's happening, guys? Welcome to this edition of the Investor's Outlook podcast. Today, we're going to be talking taxes, taxes and real estate. We have special guest Eric Oliver on the show. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure, man. This is going to be an exciting show. I mean, uh, I always start off the show with a bio of who you are, what you do, and how you got here. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, as you mentioned, my name's Eric Oliver. I'm with a company called Cost Segregation Authority. And my background is in accounting. Um, I uh, was looking for a quick way to get through college and English was never my suit. Math always came easy to me. So it was either finance or accounting. So I decided to take the accounting route and ended up at this company about seven years ago where we focus on uh, doing cost segregation studies to help reduce tax liability for real estate investors. So we work with CPAs and investors across the country on reducing their tax liability through cost segregation. Interesting, interesting. So why don't you uh, explain what, what is cost segregation? Sure. So cost segregation is really just your accelerated depreciation on your real estate assets. So normally, if you were to buy a commercial building, that building typically gets depreciated over 39 years. Now, I should back up and uh, explain what depreciation is. Depreciation is just a non-cash expense. So you've got your income, then you've got your expenses, then you've got your taxable income at the bottom. And uh, depreciation is one of those expenses. And so if we can accelerate those depreciation expenses, as I mentioned, normally on a commercial property, you would depreciate it over 39 years, um, meaning you're going to get one thirty-ninth of that deduction, whatever you paid for the property over the next 39 years. But I may not even own the property in 39 years. So give me my deductions today. And the way that's done is through an engineering-based study where we come in and identify short-term assets. So for example, when you buy a building, you don't just buy the land and the walls. You also buy some carpets, some countertops, some cabinets, some lighting. All these different components, according to the IRS, should be depreciated at a much faster rate. Carpet doesn't last 39 years. Carpet lasts five years, according to the IRS. So let's depreciate the value of the carpet over five years instead of 39 years. By doing so, you're front-loading your depreciation into those early years. And then there's a number of reasons why you want to do that, obviously. Time value of money, inflation. Um, give me my dollar today, right? A dollar today is worth way more than a dollar in 39 years. So especially with the rate of inflation here in the States. So um those are, that's kind of what cost segregation is. We're just accelerating those um, depreciation deductions into the earlier years. Right. That makes sense. Now I get that. So that's actually quite interesting. I did not even know you can do that. Yeah. So. Well, the, the, the thing is, is, you know, if, if, I, uh, if I own an uh, apartment building, for example, and I go put new carpet in there, I get to depreciate that carpet over five years. The problem is, is if I go buy a new apartment building that already has carpet in it, me and my CPA don't know the value of that carpet. I just paid $2 million for the building, but I don't know what the carpet's worth. I don't know what the parking lot's worth. I don't know what the cabinets are worth. So that's what a cost segregation study does is it comes and breaks up that purchase price into those different buckets that allows you to um, depreciate them at a faster rate. Like I said, if I were to build a new parking lot, I would obviously have invoices for that and could put that on the books as a 15-year asset. But if I buy an existing parking lot that was put in in 1975 in this apartment building, I don't know what the value is, right? And so having an engineering-based company come out, put values to those different components, allows you to depreciate them on the correct schedule versus just a standard 39-year schedule. Makes sense. I, I, I get that part. Now, 
how did you come across this? Like, how did, like, how did you get into the business? Like it's not something that you would typically think of. It's not like I'm going to wake up Monday morning and saying, I'm tired of being a real estate agent. I'm going to become uh, a cost segregation person. Right. That's so a good, That's a good question. My kids always joke with me. They're like, dad, when you were growing up, did you always want to be a cost segregation specialist? <clears throat> Um, the answer is no. I didn't even know what cost segregation was when I was, I uh, grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, moved to the East Coast. I was in business development sales for a number of years, um, ended up in Long Island, New York, doing, um, uh, working for my father-in-law who had a landscaping company. And we were looking to come back to Salt Lake. Um, my background was in business development and accounting. I had an accounting degree. And so came across this job, I had to learn what cost segregation was before I even applied. And so I was watching YouTube videos. Now that I've done it, now that I'm part of it and been doing it for seven years, um, I would never go back. It's one of the most re rewarding jobs I've ever had for the simple reason that we're saving tax money, right? I'm working with investors and it's, it's, I don't have to sell them anything. It's like pay me 4,000 or you pay the IRS 40,000 in April, you decide. And so it's, it's great that I don't have to try and convince anybody. It's just a math equation and it's just good business. Um, the IRS isn't going to tell you that you're not depreciating your stuff at the right rate. As long as it keeps the money in their coffers, they're not going to be like, hey, you should be depreciating this stuff faster and getting a bigger write-off. They want to hold on to your money because obviously they're investing it and making money off it. But um, I love the job. I love what I do. It's been great. Um, I've been able to see different types of investment strategies all across the country. Like I said, we work with CPAs and investors all across the country. And so being able to work with that, seeing different styles of how they're doing it, what they're doing, what the hot topics are, uh, has been great. Right. Now, that's the other thing. You work with different CPAs. And how do they find you? Like, Because it's not something, I guess a CPA would know this and would look for you. I, I, well, you know. You would think so. So let me I'll explain a little bit of how that works. So I always look at CPAs as kind of your general practitioners. So they know a little bit about a whole wide array of subjects. Right? There's thousands of pages in the tax code. They can't dive deep into each of those different things in the tax code. And so we're kind of like the heart surgeons that work with the general practitioners. So when they have a client who owns real estate, and could benefit from a cost seg study, they'll reach out to us and say, hey, you guys are the experts. You guys do this. You know how to do it. Let's partner. And so they'll reach out to us. We, Most of our clients, to be honest with you, are CPA firms. They refer their clients to us, their building owners. Or we do have some building owners who say, hey, I heard you on a podcast, just like we're doing today, and say, I'm not doing cost segregation. My CPA hasn't recommended it. Can you get on the phone with my CPA and let's talk through this and see if this is a good strategy for me? So part of what we do here at our firm is we do a lot of education. So whether it's podcasts, we're certified through a company called NASBA. CPAs have to have a certain amount of continuing education every year to keep their CPA license. And we're certified to be an instructor in that area. So we teach CPAs about cost segregation because, again, they don't have the bandwidth to stay on top of all the changes that happen within just cost segregation every year. And so what we like to do is go out, train CPAs, train investors on what the changes are, and uh, get CPAs on board with why this is important for their clients. Makes sense. Now, what's the costing like? I mean, because obviously, if someone's paying their CPA and then they're going to hire you, there's going to be an additional cost. It's not the same dollar rise. 
Right. So we, we're billed different than the CPAs. So CPAs will, um, you know, they'll bill you on an hourly basis. Typically we bill for the, the size and scope of each project. So obviously if you've got a large apartment building on five acres, that's going to be more work for us than if you've got a single family home on a quarter acre. And so our pricing is all based on the size and scope of each project. Typically we like to see anywhere from a seven to 10 X return on our investment. So if we're going to charge you a 4,000 on a study, we're hoping that you're going to save at least 40,000 in taxes. Now that varies on independent or on individuals, different tax brackets, obviously. Um, but right now with some of the changes that have happened recent or not so recently, but some of the changes in the real estate industry with bonus depreciation and the fees coming down, there's no reason why you shouldn't have at least a 10 X return on your cost segregation study. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I got two questions here, like from this. Yeah. One is that there's got to be a minimum, you know, minimum size for someone to be able to reach out to you, right? Because you mentioned yeah. single family home, and I can't see the cost versus return being a big enough number to warrant it. But I could be wrong because obviously this is new to me too. So, sure. No, let me just, I'll explain. So, if you would have asked me five years ago, what is the minimum number, dollar value? I would say probably north of 500,000. Now, the reason for that is the fees were a lot more expensive to get the study done. And the benefit from that study was a lot less than it is now. So in 2000, at the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, when Trump was our president, he passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So as I'm sure you are aware, Trump is a real estate investor, owns a boatload of real estate. And as I'm sure you're aware, he also pays very little taxes. That was a lot of the news talk around his election time. Um, part of the way that's done is through segregating or taking these non-cash losses. And so with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when he revised the tax code, he increased something called bonus depreciation. So now that bonus depreciation is around, and all bonus depreciation is, is when we find and put a value to your five-year carpet, instead of depreciating it over five years, you get to take 100% of that deduction all in the first year. Any properties placed in service between September 27th of 17 and the end of this year, 2022, are eligible for 100% bonus. And so what this has done is it's opened up cost segregation. First of all, it's put cost segregation on steroids. It's made our <laughs> benefits extremely large. And by doing so, it's opened up cost segregation to a wider range of investors. So now I'll give you an example. Let's say I buy a a $230,000 single family rental. Let's say land is worth 30,000. So now I've got two, 200,000 of what we call depreciable basis because you don't get to depreciate land. On that 200,000, if you were to do a cost seg study and we found, let's say 30% segregation, which is very typical, probably a little conservative, that's a $60,000 write-off. 30% of 200,000 is a $60,000 deduction. Now, if you're in a 30% tax bracket and you have a $60,000 deduction, you just created an $18,000 tax savings. A study on a $200,000 residential rental is probably going to cost you between $2,500 and $3,000 for an engineering-based study. So I'll pay $2,500 if I can save $18,000 all day long. And so because of that, because of bonus depreciation, it makes it worth it. Now, in the old world, prior to 2017, that single family rental, that same single family rental might only save you five or 6,000 by doing the cost sake study. So then you got to weigh, well, I'm going to pay three, but I'm only going to get five. Is it worth it? Maybe, maybe not, depending on how long you own it. Because remember, 
you do have to pay some of this back when you sell the asset. So, you know, you got to you got to weigh those out. It wasn't always didn't always make sense, but nowadays anything thousand probably is going to make sense as long as you can absorb those deductions, at least in the current under the current tax code. Right. Well, that's the thing you said. Like you have to pay some of it back, right? So I missed that part and that point before. Yeah. So that makes sense now. Now, okay, yeah. So it's sort of like almost. It's almost like you're borrowing money from the future. You are. You're basically taking an interest-free loan from the government and paying it back when you sell it. But let me explain something because this is important. I always like to share this even with CPAs because they don't always understand how recapture works upon sell. But when you do a cost segregation study, let's say you don't do a cost segregation study. Let's back into it. It'll be easier. So if you buy a building for a million dollars and five years later you sell it for two million, you're telling the IRS that over those five years, everything doubled in value, right? You bought it for a million, you sold it for 2 million. My land is worth double. My walls are worth double. And my dirty old nasty carpet just went doubled in value. Well, carpet doesn't go up in value. Carpet goes down in value. But when you don't pull the carpet out and segregate it into those different buckets, you just have to treat it as one big asset. And so you just have to say, hey, I bought it for a million. I sold it for 2 million. And you pay tax on that million dollars of gain. What should happen is, what is your five-year carpet? Carpet is a five-year asset. What is carpet worth after owning it for five years? What's the book value? Zero. It's worth nothing, according to the IRS. So you shouldn't sell your carpet for more than you bought it for five years ago. And when you don't do cost segregation, that's what you're unintentionally doing, is you're selling that dirty, nasty carpet for double what you bought it for. And you're paying tax on it. And you shouldn't, unless you have a house full of antique cars and antique artwork that go up in value, you shouldn't be paying taxes on that personal property. It all goes down in value. And so that's one of the added benefits when you sell the asset. Yeah, you are paying some of it back. You're paying a, you take your deduction at the highest rate, your ordinary income rate, pay a portion of it back at a lower rate at a future date and save the spread. And the portion is dependent upon how long you've owned the asset. If you've owned it for five years, you're not paying any of those five-year assets back because they didn't go up in value. That all gets shift, shifted over to capital gains, and there's a rate arbitrage, and you you save the money on the back end as well. So um, that's kind of how recapture works is take your deduction at the high rate today, pay back a portion of it at a future date at a lower rate, and save the spread. Makes total sense. Now, here here's the big question, right, because I'm Canadian, you're American. Obviously, <laughs> yes. our tax laws are different, and I'm not sure if you're going to know this. But is this strictly a U.S.-based item, or do other countries have this as well? You know, I honestly don't know that much about international tax. I know that we have a lot of investors who invest outside of the states. If I have an apartment building in Canada, if I pay American tax on that or U.S. tax on that, I can take advantage of cost segregation. Now, I don't know what if... Canada has similar tax laws. I mean, it varies from country to country, so I wouldn't be able to tell sure. you. Um, but I know that most countries have a form of depreciation and whether or not they can utilize cost segregation, I'm not sure. I'm not aware of any countries that have cost segregation studies, but I I wouldn't be the best to answer that. So <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. I get that. Yeah. Um, now, here's the other thing, right? Because you mentioned foreign investment, right? Like, just say I want to buy a 48-unit uh, uh, building in Miami, um, but I'm a Canadian, so I believe, yeah, so how um, uh, there's got to be a way that cost segregation would work for me there as well. 
Because if I'm yeah, not mistaken, you're going to have U.S. income on that apartment building in Miami, which means you're probably going to pay U.S. tax on it. So if you're paying yeah. U.S. tax on it, then absolutely you do a cost segregation study to lower the amount of income you have coming in. So you pay less taxes, less U.S. taxes. Right. That's what I was thinking, because I believe if I have that U.S. income, I, there's a, I have to open up a U.S. Uh, income tax account. And sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I get it. I, that, that, that's what I was trying to figure out. All right. So that's pretty interesting. That that's interesting. So it applies to foreign, you know, investment for Canadians buying in the U.S., which is actually quite popular lately. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We work with a lot of foreign investors who have U.S. properties. Um, doing cost segregation, we can lower their U.S. income, which in turn lowers their U.S. tax bill, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Love it. Love it. So now, what about in terms of energy credits? Is there anything in terms of like, like everyone's going green now. So what could, <laughs> you know, like, is like, it's, it's the biggest talk out there. Uh, it I mean, most of it is, uh, you know, we're failing at it, but the intent sure. is there. <laughs> sure. No, that's a great question. So the IRS, if you actually read the tax code, which I wouldn't suggest anybody read the U.S. tax code because it's thousands of pages. But if you're bored one day and you want to read it, the, the U.S. tax code, the U.S. government has initiatives and what they're trying to accomplish, they will create a tax code or a tax law to encourage people to do just that. So if they want you to go out and buy electric cars, they're going to give you a tax credit to go buy an electric car because that's going to encourage people to go out and do it. There's a lot of green initiatives within the federal government at the U in the, here in the U.S. And so one of those is um, energy efficient housing. So there is a program out there that's probably one of the least underutilized deductions, or excuse me, credits that I'm aware of, and that's the 45L energy credit. So the 45L energy credit is if you build energy efficient homes and you have them certified, you may be eligible for a $2,000 credit per door. So if you've got a fourplex, that's an $8,000 credit. Now, um, these are credits, not deductions. So this credit comes off your tax bill. So if you owe $8,000 in tax and you have an $8,000 credit, you owe zero in tax. Very different okay. than a deduction. But um, basically what we're looking at when we certify these homes, we're looking to see if there's insulation in the walls, what type of insulation, is it energy efficient, energy efficient windows, HVAC lighting. And if it meets certain criteria, you're eligible for this $2,000 credit per dwelling unit. Now, the IRS identifies a dwelling unit as a unit that has a place to eat, a place to sleep a place to use the restroom, and a place to prepare food. And if you meet those criteria, you're eligible for that credit. Now, the IRS just passed the Inflation Reduction Act a few months back. And in that Inflation Reduction Act, they actually increased these credits for starting next year to 2,500. And it could be as high as 5,000 for certain types of energy efficient dwelling units. And so if you are a developer or if you're building homes you may be eligible for this, any type of residential unit. So student housing, senior housing, apartment buildings, um, single family homes are all eligible for these credits. And so definitely have somebody look at your plans to see if your properties are or may qualify for these credits. And then you can look into it even more and, and take advantage of some of these credits. Those are for the residential side. There is another uh, program out there for the commercial side, commercial side, excuse me, called 179D. Now, the 179D is a similar program, but this is a deduction. Currently, under the current tax law, it's $1.88 per square foot for commercial buildings. So if you build a new office building 
and it meets certain criteria, you may be eligible for $1.88 per square foot as a deduction that you don't have to pay recapture on when you sell the asset. So again, we want to look at things like the building envelope, which is the exterior walls, the attic insulation, windows, HVAC, lighting. The nice thing about the 179D is you can actually go back on anything you've built since 2005 and take advantage of this without having to amend any prior year's tax returns. Um, on the 45L that I mentioned with the residential, you're not able to do that. You, do, you would have to go back and amend your returns if you built properties and put them into service in, let's say, 2021, you would have to go back and amend. But the 179D side, you don't have to go back and amend. You can take the deductions on the current tax return, which is great. Um, and it may be eligible for that $1.88. Now, same thing with the 45L with the Inflation Reduction Act. They increased the numbers on the 179D from $1.88 per square foot up to $2.50 and on a sliding scale up to $5. So starting next year, any commercial buildings that are placed into service, new construction would possibly be eligible for a $2.50 per square foot all the way up to a $5 per square foot deduction. Now, keep in mind, this is typically for new construction or on the commercial side, if you're building out a space. So if you've got a shell and you go in and you put in tenant improvements, you put in new lighting, new HVAC, um, it may be eligible for that as well. But for the for typically, we look at these mostly on new construction projects as, as, as opposed to remodel projects. But it, it, remodels could qualify. Um, they're a little harder to qualify for, but definitely worth looking into if you're in either of those situations. Interesting to know. That's actually pretty good. So with all that being said, like if someone's interested in getting into the business, like what would they need to do? Like what's the process? Um, you mean if they have a property and they're looking to take advantage of some of these? Well, I was referring if they wanted to actually become a cost segregation person. But you know what? Let's answer your question, what you brought yeah. up first. Sure. So um, if you're interested in, in looking at your buildings, um, most cost segregation companies will provide a free benefit analysis property before you ever engage with us and say, yeah, um, we think we can or increase your depreciation by X amount. Here's what your fee would be to do that. Here's what your tax savings would look like. And then you can get with your CPA and decide if it makes sense, or we can get on a phone call with your CPA and kind of walk through the process. So you always want to get a free benefit analysis done before ever engaging with a cost segregation company. And then same thing on the 179D and the 45L. Typically, you can send us a copy of your building plans. And from there, we can get a good idea on whether or not these properties would qualify. And then we could come back with, to you with a fee and say, hey, on this you know, 30,000 square foot office building at $1.88 per square foot, here's what your deduction would be. Here's what the fee would be to get that deduction. Uh, because both the 45L and the 179D have to be certified by a third party. So you want to reach out, provide the plans, and then we can give you an idea on whether or not it's going to qualify. Then to answer your other question, as far as getting into this industry, um, cost segregation is a growing industry. It's becoming more and more popular. People are learning about it. You know, back 10 years ago it was really just for large commercial buildings. And so there is a need for more cost segregation professionals. Typically to get into cost segregation, we're looking for somebody with construction background. So according to the IRS audit guide, the guide that they put out on, on what a quality study needs to look like, it states very specifically in there that a cost segregation study should be done with by somebody with experience in both tax 
and construction. And so if you've got a construction background uh, and or a tax background, there's definitely a place for you um, within the cost segregation industry. Like I said, it's a growing industry. Um, it's a very rewarding job. I love what I do um, to be able to help investors, you know, further their portfolios at a faster rate by saving them money on their taxes. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. Right. Cause I mean, <laughs> Hey, who doesn't love saving money on taxes? <laughs> right. So, but yeah, no, cause it sounds interesting, right? It sounds like something that is rewarding. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that you are enjoying that portion of it. Right. So yeah. it, again, you get to help people and at the same time, you're, uh, you're doing something that's exciting. So it's not something I'd ever, I even heard of before today, right. So which no, is it's, awesome. It's the fun side of tax. Most people here, you know, when I say that I work with real estate investors on taxes, they're like, ah, taxes is boring. But it's the fun side of tax. Saving tax money versus paying tax money is, is exciting. So I really enjoy it. Absolutely. So with that being said, and, you know, the fact that it's a growing industry, what does your future look like in this industry? Um, you know, we are... Here at our company, we are growing like crazy. I mean, we are doubling in size every year. We're looking for employees constantly. We can't find enough employees. And so um, I anticipate that with the tax code, depending on the U.S. economy, like I said, I think I mentioned that bonus depreciation. Bonus depreciation will start to phase out here over the course of the next four or five years. Um, but the U.S. government uses that bonus depreciation to stimulate the economy when needed. So there was talks with this Inflation Reduction Act that they were going to extend the 100% bonus. Uh, it didn't get passed under the current law. My guess is depending on how the US economy does next year, they may or may not increase the bonus depreciation or keep it at 100%. But um, it's a strong industry. Like I said, more and more people are getting into real estate. I think more and more people are less trusting of the stock market. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, having something tangible, I would much rather invest my money in something that's tangible um, I know in our market here, I'm in Salt Lake, there's not enough housing for the amount of people that are coming into our market. And so um, even in this, you know, so-called bubble that we're in now in this housing bubble, prices probably aren't going to come down much. They might not increase at the rate that they were before, but they're definitely not going to come down much just because we don't have enough housing as it is for the amount of people we've got coming in. Now, not every market is that same way, but um, here in our market, that's the way it is. And so I would much rather invest my money in real estate than I would the stock market where things can be easily manipulated. So I think it's a growing industry. I think real estate is a growing industry. I think obviously with social media and podcasts like you're doing and getting the information out there on how to invest in real estate, I think those are important things for the younger generation. You know, they're more in tune with I never had access to this information until seven years ago when I started working here, right? I didn't know what cost segregation was. I had some friends who had dabbled in real estate, but really didn't know how to or, or why it was important. So I think information is key. Education is key. And so I think with the internet, with the social media platforms, with these podcasts, I think getting that information out is great. And I think more and more people are investing in real estate and uh, I think it'll continue to grow. I agree with you 100% on that. I mean, even uh, like even with the so housing supply issue, I think uh -huh. that is, uh, you're right. It depends on where you are. But I think in general, many places are facing that issue. Like in Toronto, we do have a housing problem. We're getting 410,000 new immigrants. Wow. And we're already short housing as it is. Our issue, we've had a slowdown. And I think 
we at this point in time we've kind of plateaued to where the slowdown is going to be, right? Right, because we still have a uh, shortage of housing. Our pla- yeah. our short our, our plateau has nothing to do with the demand and everything to do with affordability. Right. Right. So, and that's what ha- what it comes down to, which is, and the proof of that is that rents have skyrocketed. The demand for rentals, like what we were going through with the buy and sells before with the multiple offers and over asking and blah, 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 blah. We are now going through that through rents. Right. Which is proving that the point that the demand is still there. Yeah, it's absolutely. Just, you know, it's, it's just affordability is gone. So, yeah. and, and eventually that will correct. Yeah, it will. And that's what we're seeing here in our market. A lot of the new construction is all um, smaller smaller rentals, condos that are more affordable because we've got the same problem here. You can't, you know, starting out as a new family, you're not going to be able to afford a $600,000 single family home, but maybe you could get a townhouse or you could at least rent a place where rent is affordable. So no, we're yeah. seeing the same thing here. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, look, at one point in time when we were at the peak, a single family home, detached home, was at $1.6 million. Wow. And that's not the most expensive. That was average. Right. So, <laughs> right. And I'm going to tell you, our salaries are no different. It's the same 60 to 80 to maybe 100 on the high side. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, salaries aren't going up at the same rate that rents are going up or mortgages are going up. I'll tell you that. And, and that's exactly where I was going with that, right? So how is that affordable? So now, here's the thing now. So now that average has come down to 1.1, 1.2 million and 50. I mean, you can find homes again for 800, 900,000 where you couldn't before. Right. But I'm going by averages. Like I said, the average before was 1.5, 1.6. But you'd find homes for 30 million if you really looked. So right. you're go by average, right? So with right. that being said, so it's come down quite a bit. But again, there's only so much of it it can come down. And even at that $80,000 a year salary, how many people can get a mortgage for uh, 1.2 million bucks? Especially so, with, and I don't know how interest rates are in Canada, but the interest rates here have obviously gone up as well. Um, yeah, so exactly. Going up, you can even, you can now only, you can afford even less now because the interest rates are so much higher. And that's exactly it, right? Like we're not far behind because you guys usually raise it, then we raise it, then you raise it, okay. then you raise it. So it's like, it's like we're playing, playing catch up all the time. Like I think we're only about a half a point away from you guys. Like I think that's the difference. Okay. Yeah, so, and you know, we all predicted that this stuff was going to stop where the mortgage rate was going to be at 6%. But the way things are going, I think we're going to hit seven, seven and a half. Yeah, that's where we're at here in the States. So it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's crazy. But hey, I guess it's, I don't know. I think it's moronic, but our governments will say it's necessary. Um, right. <laughs> let's be honest. Let, 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 let's be honest on this. The issue here is a supply chain issue. So let's tax everybody in the form of interest. Be, you know, hold on. Better example. This is what's happening. I go to my mechanic and say, I need four new tires. And my mechanic right. says, here's a steering wheel. But I still need tires. Here, take two steering wheels. Like, <laughs> right. You know, somehow giving me more steering wheels is going to solve the fact that I got four flat tires. <laughs> right. Which That's is essentially what's happening. But yes. I think eventually I like things will catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that analogy. That's a great analogy. It's the truth, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying we have to, we can sit around and do nothing, right? Like inflation is a problem. And I think the majority of people don't really understand the problem that inflation brings. Right. Because the words we, we're used to hearing is recession, depression, 
We're not used to hearing inflation as an inflationary recession. We're just used to hearing the word recession, right? So now that this is kind of a new term and it's not based on normal activity, it's based on basically pro-pandemic, not, not pro, post-pandemic results, right? So, you know, it's kind of new territory for everybody. It is. It is. And it's, I'm, I'm glad to, well, I don't know that I'm glad to hear. I don't know if that's the right term, but it's interesting to hear that you guys are experiencing the same thing up there that we are down here. I mean, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, so. I think the only thing I would change is uh, the, who, who, you know, the, basically I would change all the politicians. And then other than that, the problems will uh, <laughs> be the same. <laughs> you and I, both. I don't trust any politicians. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. They're all corrupt as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> I know, but at least some of the corrupt politicians still benefit you. <laughs> <laughs> it's <is> true. <laughs> I mean, ours causing the army for truckers. You know I mean? God forbid. Oh, I mean, yeah. We got right. Ukraine. That Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine president guy, you know, he goes in front of the Russian tanks saying, shoot me. And uh, our, our prime minister hides at a cottage and calls the uh, army for uh, truckers. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. But anyways, it is what it is. You know, that's yeah. just part of life. It is. Nothing we can do about it. So <laughs> Exactly. So with that being said, I'm going to get on to the next question, which is, yeah. how do you know you've had a successful day? That's a great question. So, um, you know, I, I am a firm believer in trying to just better myself from day to day. So we're all human. We're all going to make mistakes. But if I can, at, at the end of the day, if I can look back and say, you know, I'm a better person today or I did something better today than I would have yesterday, that's all I can hope for. So whether it's in, you know, personal life or here in, here in business or whether it's raising my kids or in my relationship with my wife, that's always what I'm looking for. Try to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And so if I can lay my head down at night and say, hey, I've improved. I may not be where I want to be, but at least I'm improving. You know, eventually you'll get there as long as you're going the right direction and not going backwards. So that's how I would uh, base my uh, day is, you know, am I a better person today than I was yesterday? That is an amazing answer. I love that. Yeah. So second last, well, last question before we get into the lightning round, which is just fun questions, which is how do people find you? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, you can reach out to me. My contact information is on our website. Our website is just www.costsegauthority.com. And my contact information is out there. You can request a free analysis. If you've got a property and you're interested in getting an analysis, you can request that from there. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, but yeah, my phone number and email are, are on our website. Fantastic. So now getting into the bonus lightning round, which is going to be my first and favorite question. What is your favorite food? Um, New York pizza. So I had the, I was fortunate years and there's nothing like it. I don't care where you are. There's people that say it's like New York pizza, but if you're not in downtown New York, um, something in the water, I don't know what it is, but New York pizza is <laughs> by far my favorite food. I love that. You can say it's like New York pizza, but it's not New York pizza. <laughs> close. I've had some close comparisons, but it's never the same. So definitely a New York pizza. For sure. Get that. Favorite vacation spot? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my favorite vacation spot is probably Yellowstone. I don't know if you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park up in Montana, Wyoming area. Um, but been there a number of times. Every I love nature. I love wildlife. And so 
um, being able to, you know, see the animals. Uh, last time we went up there, my kids came face to face with a black bear on the trail. They were probably 20 yards from a black bear. Scared the hell out of me, but wow. something they'll never forget, I'm sure. And so I just love nature. So Yellowstone has always has a special place in my heart. Um, probably my best place to, to unwind and, and uh, vacation for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I like that. You know, close to a black bear and you got out of there. That's a great way <laughs> I'm, a to pretty I'm a pretty sophisticated guy. My favorite food is pizza and I like camping. So, um, you know, most people would say steaks and, you know, Barbados or something. But I'm like, <laughs> pizza and camping is is kind of what I like to do. So, hey, you know what? It's actually pretty good, right? I mean, who doesn't love pizza? Let's be honest. <laughs> right? right? Like, come on. Right? If you don't <laughs> like pizza, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> But, um, yeah, you're right. Like, camping, everyone has different things, right? Like, um, I think camping is one of those things that you're going to absolutely love it, and you're just an outdoorsy type of person, right? or you're going to hate it. I don't think there's a middle ground. There's not. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, which is awesome, right? Like, to each their own, right? Like, I, I'll be honest. When I was younger, I used to be an outdoorsy person. I used to love everything outdoors. Yeah. Um, as I got older... It's more like, where's the air conditioning? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. I must say, I, I'm with you. You know, growing up, we used to always camp in tents. And now I'm like, man, that RV was really nice. I don't know if I could do a tent again. So I'm getting yeah. there. <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> little by little. <laughs> Next question is, what is your favorite book? Um, that's a good question. So um, one of my favorite reads, there's a... A gentleman that I've seen present a number of times, his name's Tom Wilwright. Um, Tax-Free Wealth is the name of the book. Um, he's actually Robert Kiyosaki's CPA, I believe. And just the way that he, uh, just the way he looks at taxes. I mean, it's probably my best business book. I don't know that it's something I would read while I'm on the beach. I don't know that it's the best. <laughs> read um, but as far as business books go, some of the things, some of the nuggets I've pulled out of that book are, are amazing. Just the way he looks at tax from a different perspective. Um, that's probably one of my favorite business reads for sure. Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wilwright. Love that. Now, last question, but not least. If you were given 48 hours with unlimited amount of money, the only catch is you get to keep everything you spent with it, but you have to give back what you didn't spend. What would you do? Ooh, that's a tough one. So, um, I would, if I only had 48 hours, that's the hard part. I would probably travel. I'm all about experiences. So being, a, if I had unlimited money, being able to go wherever I wanted and do whatever I wanted to do, um, I do think I would probably invest some of that if I had unlimited wealth <laughs> for 48 hours. I'd go buy some property so that I could continue to go um, on these experience events. But um, that's probably what I would do. I'd, I'd invest it in some real estate because I do think real estate is important. I think it's a great way to create reoccurring income and, and long-term wealth. So I'd invested in some real estate and then I would probably take a nice long beach vacation. Well, not too long. I only had 48 hours, but at least get me there. How about that? I could pay for it to get me you there. Get then that, exactly. To, I could get there, stay there for a week and then I'd have to figure out how to get home. But um, I think uh, that's, that's what simple. I would. Remember you can spend it in 48 hours. That's the only time you'd probably pay everybody in advance. That's it. True. I would get a ticket. <laughs> I would, I would get there pay for my ticket, spend a month in Barbados, and then come back. So there we go. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. This was incredible. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Hopefully uh, your listeners learned something. Um, thank you for having me. You've been great. And uh, we'd love to come back sometime. Absolutely, man. We'll keep in touch for sure. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. If you like what you saw and you want more episodes, subscribe to the link below.